Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. All right. It has been obviously a a newsy, news-filled couple of days here with the remarkable events that have occurred in Iraq with the assassination of that uh, top Iranian general. Joining us right now uh, is somebody who I've talked to before, really who is uh, an extraordinary expert on the Middle East, on Iraq, on Iran. It is a a complex web that exists there, and and it has become more complicated, I think, in the last 48 hours. I think it's fair to say. Uh, Tom Gutierrez is the former dean of Middle Eastern Studies at the University of Nebraska. Tom, thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, nice to be with you again, Esme. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you. Well, let me ask you, first of all, from where you sit, and and this is what your life's work has been, studying this area. Were you shocked by uh, the American action that took out that high-ranking general? I was. I, I was shocked, I guess, by the proportion in the in the manner in which we were kind of going uh, tit-for-tat uh, with Iran, as we have been doing now ever since we uh, left the Iran nuclear deal. So our relationship with that country has been on a steady decline, and these kind of reciprocals, the cycle of reciprocating activities, uh, revenge uh, activities, uh, has been putting us on this kind of path. But this one is certainly a major uh, type of of reaction, uh, and I don't know if it's proportional to the kinds of things that we have seen in the exchanges leading up to it. Right. Um, there are reports um, from Iran that uh, the uh, assassinations by uh, the U.S. military of uh, General Soleimani and the others that were with him uh, has has served to unite fractions in Iran and coalesce them in support of the government there. Is that something that you think probably is happening? And what what kind of a sign is that? Well, I think that is definitely what's happening. I don't. If people have been following the news over the last uh, several months, there have been many demonstrations in Iran against the government over matters having to do with gasoline prices and other elements that are more a reflection, I think, of the majority of the population just tiring of a government which is so oppressive. Um, Even though there's many uh, civil society uh, activities within Iran in terms of elections and the way the country is constructed in its administration, people are tiring of um, of the theocratic nature of the state. So now what's happened, of course, is those moderate forces, those forces that have been seeking change in their own country, are driven to the more hardcore uh, extremist elements supporting the Ayatollahs and the uh, security forces, which have 
been used in the past to kind of keep them in place. So this is, in terms of long-term perspective and long-term American interest in that part of the world, this is a, a setback because people in Iran, like people in most countries, want to um, experience life life like we all do. And um, uh, they were demonstrating for change to be able to do that. Well, no one is shedding tears, it sounds like, uh, at least in the Western world, over General Suleiman. I mean, he was, you know... Uh, even those who are opposed to what the president did, this was not a, a good guy. This is somebody who had put together sort of a web, as I understand it, of, um, you know, groups and terror organizations and connections and sort of stretched throughout sort of almost like a shadow, uh, you know, connections all over the Middle East it, it, to terror organizations. Yet, Well, I, you're, you're correct there, and I think Qasem Soleimani is, you know, uh, seen by almost no one except in Iran or in those circles that depend upon him for support, uh, guidance, etc., cetera, uh, in any favorable way. So uh, it's not considered a loss by, by most. But within, this is a, an individual who is a member of a state. So it's different when you're engaged uh, against, a movement like ISIS, which right. is a non-state movement. This is a uh, this is engaging someone who is part of a state. So now it pits state against state, uh, our state against their state, the United States against Iran. And um, so, regardless of how we feel about Qasem Soleimani, the fact of the matter is, is now we are traveling down this kind of cycle of retribution, and if it continues, tit for tat, tit for tat, it's going to lead to uh, greater violence. And I think that's the biggest concern. You almost see a kind of a different pathway towards a similar uh, result like we saw in 2003 with uh, George W. Bush's attack um, in, Iraq, in Iraq and what proceeded from that. It cannot, I think, bode well um, for our long-term interests. Our long-term interests are better served by uh, peace and uh, the ability to move around in that part of the world where we have many interests, interests relating to transportation, movement of goods, our, our allies, Israel, etc., and and so these kinds of activities uh, tend to destabilize a very volatile region. Well, in terms of, um, you know, many, there are people who are listening to us right now who have loved ones who are serving overseas uh, in that region. Uh, there are people who are listening who have loved ones that are going to be serving overseas in that region. Obviously, more troops are being sent there. Uh, you know, people are being, Americans are being asked to leave Iraq. How, how, how much, how, how wary should we be of retaliation, which has been promised by the Iranian regime? How, how certain are, are, are you that there will be some sort of major retaliation? Well, of course, no one can be very certain, but uh, the, the president and his administration is cautioning all of us that there is likely to be something of that nature. 
The thing to remember, Esme, yes, we have these military personnel serving in various parts around there. We have even more Americans who are working in various parts around, uh, you know, the Middle East as private citizens. They, too, now are going to be, I think, very much uh, in jeopardy, their security. So we have a combination of, of, of American citizens, both military, security, and private and public, you know, we are diplomats and, and things of this nature, who are uh, certainly in, the, in this environment of retribution and passion uh, are put in jeopardy. So I, I think we, we, have to, we have to assume that we need to be wary of this, uh, of this environment we're in now. Is it possible that this... Uh this mission that that took out not just General Soleimani but other top uh, Iranian leaders, and then there's apparently another airstrike that happened within the past uh, 48 hours as well uh, that has taken some others out. Is it possible that by taking out, and I, I assume that the Trump administration is banking on this, by taking out those top leaders, it lessens the chances of Iran being capable of mounting some kind of reprisal. Uh, by all accounts, this General Soleimani was was somewhat of a mastermind in terms of both his ability to connect various organizations together and in terms of military strategy. Well, when you take out somebody like this, uh, it, it, of course, at least it uh, forces a change perhaps in in assessment and in direction if you're leading or the, the successor leading whatever it was that he leaves behind. And and also remember that one of those individuals that was traveling with him, a man by the name of Mukadess, uh, was from Iraq. So the Iraqis, if you see, are uh, demonstrating in the streets too. We we're being asked by the Iraqi citizens to leave, and this is you know the country where we spent so much time since. And, and, and do you think that will happen? Well, I I think uh, we're certainly. At a, at a juncture where we're close to a precipice, you know, and it could go either way. And it's going to take a lot of able diplomatic uh, effort to, to, to prevent us from being forced backward in this situation. And we, we, we don't have an administration right now which has demonstrated its um, capacity or talents in in dialogue and negotiations, and and so I'm apprehensive because no, knowing the that part of the world as I do, and I and I'm 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 not trying to uh, <laughs> state that I'm all knowing, but well, you you are I, certainly an an expert in in this this part well, of the world. Well, thank you for that, but I mean, just knowing this. You've got to remember that the Iranians are Shia, is, and, and they're 15% of the Muslim world. They feel very, very defensive in the competition that the Sunni Muslims, led by the Saudis, um, are directing towards them at all times. So everything that happens in the Middle East has this foundation of struggle between Shia and Sunni Muslims, much like the Middle Ages, the Hundred Years' War, the Thirty Years' Wars, etc., were struggles between 
Protestants and Catholics. And so uh, this is very, very uh, serious to them. And so all of these actions in which Suleimani was engaged, he was engaged as part of a national policy, very, very deeply planned policy from Iran with its allies in Iraq, in Syria, in Yemen, wherever they are, in defending what they thought, defending the status um, of Shia Muslims in the Middle East vis-a-vis the Sunnis. And you've got to remember that ISIS, in its very beginning, was receiving much of the money that it uh, utilized to grow, not yet from the oil that they later captured, but from monies that were coming out of Sunni coffers in the Persian Gulf, etc. So if you're an Iranian and you see what's going on, you see it through a certain prism. If you're a Saudi or a Sunni, you see it through a certain prism. And this is what we, you know, when we use and we throw around the terms like this guy's a terrorist, this guy's a this, etc. We've got to understand the environment in which they are functioning and why they are taking certain actions that are predicated upon what they believe are their interests. And and we need to, uh, you know, seek to avoid uh, complicating our interests and making them more um, vulnerable uh, by not understanding what the environment really is about. Well, at, at this point, it seems like uh, understanding on understanding is is not someplace that that either side seems headed towards. <laughs> uh, unfortunately, I think no. I, I you know this we, we've come to a point again. You know, to the edge of the cliff or the precipice or whatever it is, where you could go either way. And um, I I hope, of course, that uh, yeah. somehow or other we're all able step back from this but you know the retributions which are coming haven't been begun yet and when they do take place then what do we do how are we going to act and then how will they act and then how will we act we're in this cycle again right and that takes us to danger and again the only the most important tool that nations have to avoid these kinds of things are dialogue diplomacy and we're not a very adroit at the moment in engaging in these things and understanding the environment in which we uh, need to advance our our own interests and if we don't understand that well we're going to step into the swamps that uh, lie in front of us that pull us in in a a very, very undesirable fashion. Well, Tom Gutierrez, thank you so much for your time this evening. Obviously, we're going to continue to monitor this developing situation in the Middle East, in Iran, in Iraq. Uh, I appreciate your time and your insights as always. Good good to get back together with you, Esme. Take care. Absolutely. You too. Take care. Thank you so much. Right. Uh, Bye-bye now. Bye-bye. Coming up uh, in just a few minutes on News Talk 830, we're going to talk with Hardin Lang. He's the vice president for programs and policy of Refugees International. Talk about the impact of this crisis on refugees. But let's take a quick break. You are listening to News Talk 830.
It is Esme Murphy, along with the studio producer, Jonathan Lowe. We are talking about what is going on in the Middle East and the impact in terms of refugees. Uh, joining us right now is Hardin Lang. He is the vice president for programs and policy of Refugees International. Uh, Hardin, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, what are your thoughts about these latest developments in the Middle East? Great. Thanks very much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, I think it's hard to look at the events of the last couple of days and not expect some sort of additional escalation uh, to be headed in, our way in the Middle East. Uh, the most immediate thing that comes to mind, you know, there are a couple different options that Iran has to respond to the killing of Qasem And And do, do you agree with our previous guest who said expect a response? Yeah, I, I think that's fair to say. I think, I think it would be very difficult for uh, the... Uh, the Iranian regime at this stage not to respond in some form. Uh, for it, uh, from their perspective, the the assassination of such a senior leader inside of their military chain of command um, requires some sort of response, uh, or else they're going to they're going to fear that they're going to be looking weak, uh, right. both to their population and externally. And so there are a couple things that they options they have at their disposal. And one, obviously, which I think you guys talked about a little bit before. Will be targeting of U.S. forces that are in the region. You know, there's 6,000 U.S. troops in Iraq still, uh, and many of them are garrisoned on bases, much like the ones that were hit last week by mortar fire, in which one American contractor was killed. And so they provide a very um, vulnerable target in a number of places, as does the U.S. embassy, as we've seen uh, in Baghdad in recent days. Right. Further and that's and that's what's so I think for so many people who do have loved ones who are serving uh, when they look at the images, even before General Soleimani was killed, there was that uh, attack on the U.S. embassy uh, where obviously Iraq gave uh, clearly allowed those protesters to get right up to the U.S. embassy. Yes, it, it very much so. That occurred in you know what's known as the green zone, uh, and it's a heavily fortified re- area. And it does appear that the Iraqi security forces sort of looked the other way and allowed the the Shia militia to gather very close to the U.S. embassy. And again, and this was before attack. General Soleimani correct. was killed. Correct, correct. So it's hard to imagine that something you know of a you know of that nature, but of a different order of magnitude, isn't in the mail. Um, but there are other possibilities too. You know, there are other presences. There's still uh, a thousand U.S. troops in Syria that could become a target for um, Shia militia there. And in fact, I mean, there Iran backs the Assad regime uh, in Damascus, and was a much more, it's a very militarily capable individual um, uh, regime. And it's entirely possible that they could target uh, U.S. forces in northeast Syria. Um, and then there's also like a small U.S. presence in Lebanon, where uh, Iran has a very close relationship with Hezbollah, uh, a proxy military force that operates in southern Lebanon, uh, which is one of the most powerful political forces now in the country. So I would say in each of those three countries, there's a very vulnerable U.S. presence. Another possibility uh, is that they go after the oil infrastructure in Saudi Arabia. We saw in September when they hit some of the most Iran hit some of the most important refineries in the world uh, in in Saudi Arabia and had a major impact on oil prices globally. Uh, so that would be another option for them. Right. Um, and I. You know, so, so you're, you you are expecting that kind of uh, th- there's going to be some kind of major response. And I think that's what, you know, I think so many people are waiting to see what it will be and yeah. and who, who will be um, targeted. And, you know, you, you mentioned the Iraqi oil fields. I know that there are, you know, religious groups, certainly Jewish organizations around the world are concerned. 
Uh, there are concerns about for our troops. There are concerns about civilian targets around the world. Uh, a, a lot of concern as well. Your expertise and, and your organization um, assists refugees. What do you think this is going to do to the already critical situation in this region with refugees? Sure. So if you just talk about the humanitarian situation in general across the Middle East right now, you have some of the worst humanitarian crises uh, in Syria and Yemen. And these are both theaters, obviously, where the Iranian regime is quite active, less so in Yemen, uh, but very much so in Syria. And so any sort of heightened tension or conflict in these areas, you could easily see leading to uh, you know, a level of hostilities that could displace individuals uh, or, at minimum, certainly disrupt relief operations. For example, if I you know, were involved with an American NGO, like, the International, like any American humanitarian uh, non-governmental organization that's doing humanitarian relief in one of these countries, you have to think quite carefully about whether or not you might become a target um, in, you know, in the coming days. And I think many of them will be curtailing their activities because they're concerned about that. Right. And, and have the groups, I mean, certainly we saw with ISIS crossing the line and, and targeting mm-hmm. individuals who were with humanitarian groups or, or, or journalists who are normally sort of hands off. Are the groups that are involved here, have they already crossed that line in other situations? Well, we have seen some contact uh, between some of these organizations and then humanitarian relief efforts uh, in some parts of the Middle East. It hasn't been significant yet in the way it was by, uh, with the Islamic State sort of shutting down uh, or attempting to shut down Western relief efforts in many of these countries. I think the place, though, that's probably of greatest concern from a humanitarian perspective would be Yemen. And in Yemen, right, there has been a, a conflict going on now for about four or five years which has created the worst humanitarian crisis in the world. You know, there are 14 million people who are deeply food insecure. And Iran is a supporter of one side of that conflict. And the U.S. and Saudi Arabia support the other side in that internal conflict. Uh, and so those two parties, uh, the, the, the various parties in Yemen, have been building towards some sort of political negotiation. We're beginning to see the, uh, the, the first stages of talks brokered by the United Nations and elsewhere uh, in, in recent months, and there was hope that the new year would bring some sort of breakthrough. I think that's going to be very, very difficult to have happen, at least in the first quarter, uh, until sort of you know, the, the full tension and magnitude of what's happening here really play out. And the danger there is if there's a heightening of tensions in Yemen uh, through the different proxies, you could disrupt relief efforts, and there it could be catastrophic, right? Because if you have 14 million people who are in desperate need of food and those relief efforts are cut off, uh, you're facing you know, famine conditions uh, at a sort of biblical scale. In terms of, um, you know, where relief efforts, I mean, are, are relief efforts getting to people in Yemen or only a fraction of them? Um, is there any relief that's getting through? Yeah, there is. There's relief efforts going into, into both the areas that are controlled by the Saudi-backed coalition and into areas that are controlled uh, by the sort of Houthi rebel groups. Um, it's, it's very difficult. I will say this, though. There are a series of economic uh, in, informal blockades currently operating around Yemen, mostly run by the Saudi-led coalition, that make it difficult for assistance and even for commercial aid, uh, commercial products to make their way into the country. It's challenging. And then inside of the Houthi-controlled area, the Houthi government has been quite like the the – that militia has been very restrictive of humanitarian operations in those places. 
that said, humanitarians were able to, you know, keep the country out of famine over the last year. And the question is whether or not that kind of access will continue. And will humanitarian organizations pull back for a while just to wait and see? I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, I think here's a good example. Uh, you know, to the extent that in northeast Syria, where we've seen, you know, the, the Turks invade uh, the northeast of the country uh, as the U.S. troops pulled back last October, that led to high levels of displacement, especially among Syrian Kurds. Over 200,000 people were displaced by that. It's a very limited humanitarian, international humanitarian presence there. And uh, many of them have some sort of link back to the United States. And I think at this stage, many of those actors will have to be thinking about pulling out um, because they're going to be concerned about like closing any kind of closures between Iraq and Syria or any heightened tensions or indeed being targeted potentially by, you know, Iranian proxies. Well, listen, Hardin Lang, uh, Vice President for Programs and Policy at Refugees International, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for your insights. We certainly hope that those humanitarian efforts can, in fact, uh, not only continue, but also thrive in those areas, and that certainly those people are not targeted, because that would be uh, obviously devastating for so many. We appreciate your time tonight. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be with you. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network, from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary.